You know, Tiff, I never do ask you. Do you want to do the intro? You do such a great job. <laughs> so that means no. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. All right. Hello, everyone. This is You Totally Made That Up, a bi-weekly podcast that tells you stories from around the world. But the catch is they have to have a supernatural, paranormal, creepy, weird, spooky element to them. And our criteria is that they have to be true. None of this the lore says or the legend goes stuff. We got to have facts and dates and names. So, yeah. How about that? Yeah. How do you like them apples? So the only thing to remind you of before we get rolling is that after we say goodbye, the outro is going to tell you all the places you can visit with us online and how to contact us, which we want you to do. We want to hear your stories. Yes, because we've gotten some really, really good ones. And we're having a lot of fun with interacting with everybody on Twitter and Tumblr and what's the other one? Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, so it's it's great hearing from everybody. So please keep it up. And as of this recording, we are, I think, last time I checked, about three listens and or downloads away from 1,000. So that's pretty cool. That's oh, yeah. really, really cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Made me very, very happy. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we're going to do anything for it other than yay. I'll whip up a GIF or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thanks. Thanks, everybody. Well, thanks. For 5,000, we'll definitely do something. 1,000, yeah. we're just going to sit over here in a little bit of shock, if that's okay with everybody. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. I feel like we're going to get there. I do, too. I do, too. So for the first episode of Halloween Month, we told you stories about stuff that kicked off in October's of the past that freaked people out. And in this, your second episode of Halloween Month, we are going to talk about possible Halloween night activities, what we had in our spreadsheet as games people play, specifically games people may play for Halloween. I played both of these two. Did you? Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I played one of the two. Yeah. I played the one that you're going to do, but the one that I'm doing, nope. No? Which, okay, well, I guess I'll get rolling because it's my turn to go first. I do believe that my story is not only going to satisfy those who have come to us for true stories behind the paranormal. I think it's also going to satisfy history buffs and true crimers and science nerds as well. We have got it all. And so I take you to what has become, as Tiff mentioned last episode, what has rapidly become our goldmine for nutty stories, the 1800s. Hooray! And with that, as we know all too well, brings along with it your favorite movement and mine. Cue the deep heaving sigh. Spiritualism. <laughs> <laughs> now, we ain't going down the road of defining spiritualism again. For new listeners, please understand it has invaded several episodes. What, maybe three at this point? Something like that? At least, yeah. At least. Oh, also, I'm Nash. <laughs> I'm Tiff. It just hit me like a ton of bricks for no reason whatsoever that we never introduced ourselves. <laughs> so we're not going to try to unravel spiritualism again, just to sum up in the most basic of ways. This had to do with seances and talking to the dead and young age mortality rates and war times made it kick up harder in the population. Specifically, though, this time we're going to focus on the methodology of it all. And like I said, this episode is about games people play. But I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying that people thought communing with the dead was a game, at least not right at this point. So, ooh, foreshadowing. 
So during seances, there were some standard things that typically went down. You had your moving of objects and the furniture rattling, or the medium would be sort of temporarily possessed and speaking for the spirit. And there was spirit writing where the medium was letting the ghost control their hand and write out messages amongst all these swirly patterns. And a big thing was knocking. Lots of times in movies or whatever, you'll see them do the whole once for yes, twice for no. And that happened, but it's really limiting in what can be asked of the ghost. So they do knocking like one equals A, two equals B, three equals C, so on and so forth, which if there's lots of T's and S's and God forbid W's in an answer, I mean, you're going to be there for a while, a long ass while. That was too much. It's way too much. People were impatient, understandably. Plus it's, it's gotta be irritating anyway to have to make appointments with mediums and wait for those appointments. Then you're paying out tons of money. That is, you know, if you have the money and people also wanted to do this for themselves. But on the other hand, what if you didn't have the gift and now you're wasting time in that respect too? enter the Ouija board. And yes, that is how it's pronounced Ouija, not Ouija. Just like y'all who say Reese cups instead of Reese's cups, you're wrong. And you know, you're wrong. Don't at me. (laughs) Is that like bologna versus bologna? Bologna? (laughs) People say bologna. (laughs) Okay. I learn something new every day. All right. I know. I know. know. Like, whoa. Southern Belle over here is throwing stones about how people pronounce things. But eh. all right. Now, talking boards had been around. And they're synonymous with spirit boards, witch boards, oracle boards, and mystery boards. And researchers have found patents in Europe for a talking board, minus any mention of the supernatural, however, in the early to mid-1800s. And our story starts in the late 1800s, which is when the first patent for such was filed in the United States. We'll get there. First, though, brief overview of the Ouija board for folks who are unfamiliar. It's just a standard game board, flat, and the alphabet and numbers 0 through 9 are printed on it in some artful manner, along with a yes in one corner and a no in the other. Then there's a piece that's referred to as a planchette, and nowadays it's this rounded triangle, kind of teardrop-shaped thing that is probably roughly the size of a man's palm, give or take. And on the underside, there's these nubs, maybe with felt on them, something that keeps them moving. And back in the day, they were these little metal balls to act as tiny casters. But the point is, it needs to be able to glide across the flat surface of the board easily, which today is coated cardboard or press board. And back in the day, it was wood. Okay, so then you and at least one other person are supposed to be around the board and each of you with just a few fingertips on it, then fire away. You ask the ghost your questions and the ghost moves the planchette around to either yes or no or to spell out something. It's a lot faster Yeah, that's a lot faster than all those knocks. Right. And, you know, of course, everybody's like, oh, I didn't move it. Did you move it? No. So everybody swears they didn't move it. Now, Tiff, because I've learned that you are good for some weird ass anecdotes. And to be honest with the listeners, I have a vague memory of you mentioning something in passing when I said I was going to do this topic, but I can't recall what. Do you have any Ouija board personal experiences? Because I personally have never had occasion to use one. Uh, yeah, actually. And now I'm trying to remember why I was given one might've been either my birthday or Christmas. It was, it was definitely given to me as a gift. I don't know why, but whatever it was. And we used it at like some sleepovers. We asked stupid questions. Is anybody here? And we got a yes and other things like that. 
But probably the thing that I remember most about having it was that we lived with my stepdad's mother, who was Greek Orthodox and like actually from Greece. And um, when she found out that I had that in the house, she lost her freaking mind. And she was going around and she was wearing her like evil eye pendant and would like give me weird little like curses. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It made her very uncomfortable. Well, did, I mean, did she ever lighten up? Um, no, I don't think she liked me very much. <laughs> Just in general. Just in general. Yeah. You don't eat no meat. <laughs> it's okay. We have lamb. Mm-hmm. It's okay. We have lamb. I did eat a lot of lamb when I lived in that house. Oh my god. <laughs> Seriously, watching that movie, I was like, "Yep, yep." experienced all of that you had ptsd watching the movie i love it it's true but yeah no she she had her little evil eye that she was wearing around because i brought the devil board into her home but nothing so nothing of import ever came up it never told you anything of value or Mm, nothing that really sticks with me well you know I, i like i said i think we asked about whether or not anybody was there and i think we got a name I think it was a dude but then i don't know i can't remember i think one person I, it was probably it was definitely just static but her hair started like standing up and we all lost our minds <laughs> well let's see if you if you followed all the rules there are rules and i don't mean the instructions on the box oh okay did you know this no. they're okay well get ready I found a list of 21 but we are not going to go through all of them because i don't have that much wine Okay, so don't ask when you're going to die. Don't tease and bait the spirits into communicating, which tease, like, I don't like your mama jokes, or I know you are, but what am I? I'm not sure what. Your ghost game's so weak, you won't even show up. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Anyway, you don't do it alone. Okay. You don't do it in your home, because then you've essentially, yeah, see, there's where you screwed up. Because then you've essentially invited the spirit to stay. And I mean, if you're not doing it alone, then somebody's going to have to take the hit, right? Yeah. You know, just make sure it's when you're at the slumber party at that bitch Cindy's house. And I actually know a real rancid bitch named Cindy. So I'm making this a little bit personal. But that's my vote is you do it at Cindy's house. All right, moving on. Don't leave the planchette on the board. It's bad luck. There was no elaboration there. Just bad luck. When you end a session, everybody needs to say goodbye. And I don't mean to each other. I mean to the board and the ghosts. Make sure that everything's quiet and dark. But then they helpfully point out that you might want to use a candle so that you can, you know, see what the fucking ghost is saying. (laughs) Don't use it in a cemetery. Store the planchette and the board separately. If you want to dispose of it, never burn the board. That's what I heard. That's what I heard you're supposed to do. But you've got that candle. <laughs> it's just right there. All fine and sensible, if we can call it that. But then there's this one. This one got me. And I quote, If you speak to a spirit who identifies themselves as Zozo, end the session and say goodbye immediately. Zozo has been identified as a malevolent spirit. <laughs> they had my attention. Unfortunately, Zozo is not as interesting as personal friend of the show, Belfagor, 
The first article that I found when I was Googling, just, just out of the gate, top line, quote, first off, nobody knows who or what Zozo is <laughs> with a lead in like that. But then they go on to say that they found two references, one in a 1906 book and one in an article from, and this is vague, the 1900s, wherein a Brooke Kenilworth said her soul was stolen by her husband, Zozo. What? Sorry, Brooke. I don't, okay. But then another article attributed this Zozo stuff to a message board post from 2009 and that subsequently there were Reddit posts with people saying they communicated with Zozo and he's been featured on Ghost Adventures, that paragon of the documentary TV show genre. And apparently there's also a 2012 indie film about him or her. Zozo could be a chick. Write us, Zozo. I mean, we ain't, we ain't got a Ouija though. You're going to have to message us. <laughs> Stay tuned. You'll hear how at the end of the episode. But Zozo is just unimpressive. It's the typical voices and scratching you and all that stuff. None of this matters. All right. Late 1800s, United States, spirit boards were around. And in 1886, the AP, that's the Associated Press, the Newswire Service, puts out this article that talks about a growing sensation within spiritualism, that people were making these homemade communication boards. Enter the Kennard Novelty Company. In 1890, one Charles Kennard of Baltimore, Maryland, convinced four investors, amongst whom were Elijah Bond, who was an attorney, and Colonel Washington Bowie, who I presume was a colonel and was presently a surveyor, to go in with him to create this company expressly for the purpose of making talking boards. None of them were spiritualists, but all of them were smart, 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 because they saw a chance to make megabucks. To quote the most awesome of all my sources, a Smithsonian Magazine article, Opening the gates of hell wasn't on anyone's mind when they started the Kenner Novelty Company. In fact, they were mostly looking to open Americans' wallets. ka -ching. That's a quote right there. Oh, my God. <laughs> but you got to market this thing, and you got to make it special. So they couldn't very well just call it Talking Board or Spirit Board. And here's how the name came about. Helen Peters, who was Elijah Bond's sister-in-law, was supposedly a, quote, strong medium. And so she and whoever else, they get on a spirit board and they ask the board what it would like to be called, you know, like you do. It says Ouija. They then ask what that means. And the board says it means good luck. Okay. Now, I will say this. Helen wore a locket that had a picture of this woman in it who was somebody she admired, a women's rights activist. And said locket happened to have said woman's name engraved on it. And said name happens to be Weeda. Hmm. hmm. All right. Okay. How is that spelled? It's O-U-I, like we in French, D-A. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which all I can see in my mind is Weezer from Steel Magnolias. <laughs> That's all I'm thinking of is Weezer. <laughs> Half the people in Chickapin Parish would give their high teeth to take a whack at Weezer. <laughs> we'll get to subconscious stuff later. It's a catchy name, and it's kind of a name that's a little exotic. I mean, it very well could have said its name was Pete or George or something. So, you know, points for Weisha. I will say that just to reassure you that this is legit, a researcher called Robert Murch, who's pretty much the big expert on the Ouija board. I mean, he's quoted across pretty much every source I have. He found that part of the story in the company founder's notes and letters. And another thing he found out was the story behind how they got the patent. So back then, and to some degree today is my understanding, depending on what the patent is, you have to bring in some sort of exemplar. So Elijah Bond brings Helen and a prototype with him to the patent office in Washington. And sure enough, the patent dude wants a demonstration. 
Because interestingly, the patent application calls it a, quote, toy or game, and it details how it should be used, but it doesn't detail how it works. And this wasn't just random patent dude. This was the chief patent officer. So they set up the board, and the officer says that if the spirits could spell out his name, then he'd okay it. The spirits proceed to knock it out of the park and, quote, on February 10th, 1891, a white-faced and visibly shaken patent officer awarded Bond a patent. P.S. I know that I mentioned Bond was an attorney, but did I mention that he was a patent attorney? There's totally no way he would have known the chief patent officer's name. Nope, not a chance. This is dumb. This is actually dumb. (laughs) Oh, wow. But they're smart. They're really making it work. Oh, yeah. And they kept things mysterious, never saying how it worked. They were just these basic rules on the box of how you do it. And that was that. And who boy, did it work. I mean, listen to this timeline. The guys got together and formed the company in 1890. They get the patent in 1891. Bond also got a Canadian patent in 1891. Then by 1892, they've grown beyond just their one factory in Baltimore. They've got, this is, this is just unreal. They've got two in New York, two in Chicago, and one in London. In 1893, Kennard and Bond weren't active in the company anymore, and I didn't do a deep dive into why, but it sounds like they kept some stock. And a dude who'd worked there and was a stockholder ends up in charge of the company. His name is William Fold, and he was a spiritualist, apparently, because he's said to have said that the Ouija told him to build a new factory of his somewhere, I forget where it was, and I apologize, I didn't write it down, nobody cares. In any event, if you do a cursory search on the Ouija board, for some reason, he is sometimes credited as the inventor, and his family even put that in his obituary, who knows why, but he never claimed to be. He just would refile the patent with some tweaks. He held about 21 different patents and copyrights by the time he died, and he ran the company and later licensed the exclusive rights to produce the Ouija boards. So he, again, he never claimed to invent it. And Colonel Bowie, who was the last of the original group that was still semi-involved in the company, Apparently, he adored Fold so much that in 1919, he sells the last of his shares to Fold for a whopping $1. Wow. I mean, these people were just dirty dog, Richie Rich. So they marketed it as time went on as both this do-it-yourself gateway to communicating with the afterlife, but also as family game night fun time. It kind of just depended on what was going on at the time. And as we've talked about, spiritualist type things would kick up during times of upheaval and uncertainty, for lack of better words. In the 1910s through the 1920s, there was a noted uptick in sales. And when you think about it, that makes sense because of World War I, how that had wrecked everybody. Plus, then you're getting into all the tensions from prohibition. People were sober and bored. And it was around this point that it went from all the spiritualist stuff to being a normal activity, just goofing around. For instance, in 1920, it was such an everyday thing that one of Norman Rockwell's Saturday Evening Post covers, and Google those if you are unfamiliar, but he's famous for his works portraying idealized American life, that the cover showed this happy guy and gal huddled over a Ouija board. And one of my sources goes further and points out that this was also a kind of stepping stone into romance. The title of the article is great. It's called When Ouija Boards Were Sexy. Oh, wow. Wow. Va va voom. But the author makes a good point that, quote, at times when there were strict regulations about how and where and when courting couples could interact, the Ouija boards provided an excuse for physical proximity that was also, in its own special way, chaste. 
The boards were initially designed to be placed in one's lap, and even when the board was placed on a table, participants would generally sit knee-to-knee around it. The planchette, the vaguely heart-shaped device used for pointing out the letters and numbers, required participants to touch their fingers as they navigated it across the board. The Ouija allowed for a very Victorian version of flirting. (laughs) So scandalous. Oh my god. So the popularity just kept gaining steam. Like, take this example. Over a five-month period in 1944, quote, a single New York department store sold 50,000 of them. Unbelievable. But again, look at that date. What was going on in 1944? We've just come off the Great Depression several years prior. So more people were starting to have discretionary money again. Then, of course, World War II is going on. So tons of people dying. And they are just opening up factory after factory to meet demand, which continued after Parker Brothers bought the business and the rights to make Ouija's in February of 1966. And in the 60s, what was going on? The New Age movement, where people were getting really into occult type stuff. And Parker Brothers went all out. They made the packaging all dark and ominous with this cloaked figure on it. And they made sure it was clear that the boards were made in Salem, Massachusetts, which is where Parker Brothers was legit founded. But, you know, likely that wasn't true that your personal board (laughs) was made in Salem, (laughs) you know, because they came from factories all over the place. But the point is they were trying to bring up the Salem witch trials in people's minds. It worked. In 1967 alone, 2 million boards were sold, which they note was far outselling Monopoly, which was like the game at the time. Why? 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 Why is Monopoly ever the game? That game? Hate that game. Terrible. (laughs) It's a terrible game. It's just a way to torture your family. Okay, so Monopoly was the game at the time, still is today to some degree, but big time then. And what's going on during this period of time in the late 60s? Vietnam. So the point is, it was split as to whether there was this woo factor to it or whether it was good, clean fun. But regardless, neither of those things had an air of evil to it. The Ouija wasn't considered this awful tool of Satan or Stan, as we here like to call him at the podcast. Not to say that there weren't documented cases of people saying the Ouija told them or inspired them to do things, but minus a couple incidents like a murder and, oh, Let's see, one where this lady said that the board told her to leave her mother's body in the living room for a couple weeks before burying her in the backyard. I'm not kidding. Those are very specific directions. Holy crap. Can you imagine how long that took to spell out? But um, (laughs) these things were fairly innocuous. And we're going to come back to that topic in a second. So all in all, again, like I say, it's happy fun time. And then came the 70s, specifically 1973. Now, I want y'all to finish this episode, but you may want to stop and go listen to the back half of episode one because it is pertinent to what I'm about to say and will give you the context for just how nutso the circumstances were surrounding the movie The Exorcist. Oh, Lord, just insert another deep heaving sigh. So both the story behind the story and what was seen in the movie involved the main kickoff being these kids, a boy in the quote unquote true story and the girl Reagan in the movie dicking around with the Ouija board by themselves, which as we've covered, you're not supposed to do, damn it. That's Ouija 101, but they do and possession ensues. And I'll stick a clip of that part from The Exorcist in show notes for you. In any event, we've gone from trying to communicate with lost loved ones to general curiosity and talking to the beyond to family game night to maybe a tricksy way to get close to your crush and now to holy shit demons and basically one fell swoop. 
And that's essentially how it remains today. People think of it in spooky and kind of dangerous terms and religious institutions, regardless of denomination or culture or what have you, condemn it, that it's a tool of stand, that it's how he can reach you. Here's an example. In 2008, Hasbro, which had absorbed Parker Brothers by this time, decided to market to girls. And so they designed this board that's in a pastel box and it's got this carrying case like a little purse and the font's all cutesy and the sun and moon symbols that are by the yes and no are cartoony. And it came with suggestions for questions on cards, some of which were, quote, will I be a famous actor someday? And who will call or text me next? (laughs) Because... Yeah, because, you know, that's all us vagina havers care about. That's it. Okay. And religious parents lost their shit on the internet. There were blogs about how Hasbro was trying to sell the occult to children. And there was an attempted boycott of Hasbro products. And poor old Toys R Us got drug into it in 2010. And one of my sources featured this quote. Hasbro is treating it as if it's just a game. Christian activists Stephen Thelon told Fox News. Of course, it was Fox News. It's not Monopoly. Oh, God. Thank God. Well, yeah, we know it's not. It whooped Monopoly's ass there for a little while. And thank God again. Yes. God, I hate Monopoly. There were other mentions of people doing that thing where they burn the boards in protest. And again, you know, you're not supposed to burn it, but they would burn the boards in protest. Like, you know, this has happened with Harry Potter books and Dixie Chick albums and whatever, which always strikes me as so fucking stupid because do they not get that they've already given their money to the people that they're protesting? That definitely slips some minds. I, burn away, you dumb shits. I just, oh, you're, you're burning your money. It, whatever. Again, we here at the podcast do not know Stan personally, but I feel confident in my assertion that if Stan wants to get at you, he don't need no board game. But of course, this is pumped up by all the appearances in movies and TV shows, so it's been reinforced as such, as evidenced by many of those in recent years. I'm not naming them all or we'll be here for days. But as of 2013, the company has gone back to their Ouija boards looking more like the old-timey ones. And that historian Robert Murch says that that is, quote, cool, because people assume these boards have been around for thousands of years, which we know isn't true, but belief is important to the Ouija board. But anyway, screw TV shows and movies. I shall now tell you some true stories. But y'all, listen, I found so many true stories, lots of which were crimey ones related to Ouija boards, that it might need to either be like a spooky snack rapid fire version or save them to sprinkle into other episodes because we've got like about a billion things bookmarked loosely under the umbrella of the devil made me do it type stuff. And these would fit right in. But I'll hit on three really quickly that I found incredibly interesting, and they're short, and Tiff, they're going to get you. I think increasing, I'm going to go like the lowest bar and then kind of increase, and I really, I think you're going to find something to like about each of these. Okay. Did you know that the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, was into the woo? I did not know that. I also did not know that. In the quote official biography of him, which is called Pass It On, it talks about how Bill and his co-founder partner of AA, a Dr. Bob Smith, as well as Bill and his wife, would do seances with a Ouija in their house, in their, and I'm not lying, quote, spook room. Yes. So they apparently got the AA program idea, or at least the structure and concept of it, via the Ouija board. It did not come from Jesus. Like I think most people believe in Bill's words, quote, 
The Ouija board began moving in earnest. What followed was the fairly usual experience. It was a strange melange of Aristotle, St. Francis, diverse archangels with odd names, deceased friends, some in purgatory, and others doing nicely, thank you. That, that's the typical experience, he says, by the way. Oh, they had a party. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There were malign and mischievous ones of all descriptions telling of vices quite beyond my kin, even as former alcoholics. Then the seemingly virtuous entities would elbow them out with messages of comfort, information, and advice. All right, Bill. All right. All right. Okay, then. Then he says in a letter to his spiritual advisor, a Father Dowling, that when he was working on the steps, quote, he felt that spirits were helping him, in particular, a 15th century monk named Boniface. All right. Of course. Yes. (laughs) And then there's the AA symbol, which is a triangle in a circle. And Bill is quoted as saying that we have chosen this symbol for AA is perhaps no mere accident. The priests and seers of antiquity regarded the circle enclosing the triangle as a means of warding off spirits and evil. And AA's circle of recovery, unity, and service has certainly meant all that to us and much more. Bill also did LSD. Okay, next up. (laughs) Oh, wow. And we're going up from there. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm ready. I now bring you the jurors in the murder trial of Stephen Young. The most briefest of brief of this, a couple from East Sussex, we're in the UK here, named Harry and Nicola Fuller were murdered. They were both shot multiple times. They were found with powder sprinkled all over their bodies, which at first it was like, is this a drug thing? But no, it wasn't. It was this dude, Stephen Young, who is described as being in severe personal and business debt and that the motivation was robbery because this Fuller guy was apparently somebody who bragged about and exaggerated about how much money he had. Okay, so they nail Young because a conversation he'd had agreeing to meet Fuller the next day was recorded. And then a bank security camera caught his car coming and leaving their subdivision in the span of about an hour right at the time of death. The trial lasts five weeks. They convict. He got two life sentences. Now, see, other podcasts, they would have drugged that out for an hour-long episode. All right? So, come on now. Props. Now, here's the part of the story that concerns us. All of a sudden, this headline turns up on the front page of a tabloid paper. It says, Murder Juries Ouija Board Verdict. Subtitle, Booze, Dirty Jokes, and Then the Ouija Board. And in it is an interview with this 24-year-old dude named Adrian, who happened to be the youngest juror, and possibly the poorest, because I'm sure he got paid for this interview. But it was followed up and investigated and corroborated. So here's what young Adrian had to say. The night before closing arguments, and therefore when they'd, you know, be sent away to give their verdict, while they were sequestered in the hotel, he and three other jurors got lit, and they make a Ouija board from a piece of paper where they wrote, you know, the yes and the no and the alphabet and all that jazz. Then they used an empty wine glass as the planchette. Okay. Huh. They make contact with a spirit who spells out, oh my God, guess who it is? It's Harry Fuller. Then they ask, who killed you? And the glass, well, or Harry, sorry, says, and I quote, Stephen Young done it. So Harry in death is not a fan of grammar. (laughs) Then they ask what they should do. And the glass says that they should vote guilty. When all this came out, shit hit the fan. 
Dude's lawyers, of course, and rightly so, they request that the verdict be nullified, which it was by the Court of Appeals. And then there was another hearing in December of 1994, and that jury also found Young guilty. I mean, because he did it. Because he done it. Because <laughs> Stephen Young done it. And speaking of how those first jurors behaved, the lead detective on the case said, quote, I think it was, I, I'm using the word stupid, but it's far worse than that. <laughs> and speaking for myself and Tiff, we agree, sir. We agree. Yeah. And finally, my personal favorite, coming at you from the early 90s, the Gulf Breeze 6. Now, forgive me, I've got a quote again, because this is beautiful. Bless you, AP writer. This is exactly how to open an article. And I quote, When Vance Davis and five of his friends went AWOL, it was reported that they had gone to a Florida beach to await the second coming of Jesus Christ in a UFO. No way, says Davis. How ridiculous can you get, he says. Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. Why would he come in a flying saucer? No, says Davis. The reason they left their army intelligence posts was quite simple. Ouija board spirits told them that they were needed to help lead the world through an impending cataclysm. Oh, what? Wait, did you say that they worked in intelligence? Oh, oh, well, yes. Oh, let me, and let me, yes, let me elaborate. Now, you might think, well, military folks must go AWOL every day for a number of reasons. Who are we to judge? Put your judgy caps on. These six people were top secret security level intelligence analysts. They weren't just bottom rung intelligence analysts. Okay. Top secret security. Oh, deep breaths. Okay. I know. The fuck is the word you're looking for. So in July of 1990, they're reported missing. They were stationed at a base in West Germany. Nobody knows where the hell they are. And remember, this is six of them. This is not just like one or two people. They turn up five days later in Gulf Breeze, Florida, and are subsequently dishonorably discharged two weeks after that. And good, good. They should be nowhere near an intelligence division. I actually don't even want them near that page in a dictionary. You know, it, it's <laughs> God bless. So he starts saying, old Vance here, Vance starts saying that in November of 89, they were doing heavy air quotes experiments with ESP and parapsychology and tarot cards but that they, quote, hit brick walls, which is then when they turn to the Ouija board and score. Here they go. Now, this AP article was in 92, and he basically glosses over everything. He says that the board told them they had to leave the service, even if they couldn't do it legally or officially, because they had to warn the world about the impending apocalypse. But in 1995, we get more detail when Vance publishes his book, Unbroken Promises, and holy shit, we do not have the time to dive into this. I'm asking y'all to trust me when I say this person, based upon what I've read, so allegedly and all that, don't sue me. He seems to be quite mentally ill when it comes to delusions. And I genuinely, I just genuinely have no idea how he passed whatever cognitive processes are in place, you know, exams or evaluations or whatever to get high level analyst security access. I just, this is like NSA type stuff. I mean, granted it was in the nineties, so I don't know if the NSA was technically what it is today, but it's, it's that type of stuff. So, I mean, he's talking about visions and things that go back to when he was a teenager and he was in his early twenties when this all went down. So I don't know, maybe he's just really brilliant on the analyst side of things. And 
he just must be really charismatic or something to talk five other people into this. But it's it's just beyond me. I hope they've shored up their screening process. I'll, I'll say that much. <laughs> so anyway, all right, check this out. Specifically, the board puts them in contact with an entity called Sapphire, amongst others, including but not limited to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, Mark and Timothy of the New Testament, and of course, the Blessed Virgin Mary. So like I say, all this started in November. Then from December of 89 to July 1990, predictions started rolling in from the board. And some came true, such as the Gulf War, which they they were in intelligence. <laughs> I mean, the Gulf War officially started in August of 90, but stuff had been going down prior to that. There were signs. Yeah, I mean, everybody knew that it was coming. You didn't necessarily have to be in intelligence to know that this was coming. From my, I just, uh. So by the end of May, they were convinced by the spirits that they had to go. And each of them leaves a copy of a letter that was dictated to them by the Ouija board. Now, can you even fathom how long that took? Oh, my God. At least it's not knocking. It ain't knocking, but woo. And they said the letters, you know, they needed to get the letters to President Bush so that he would know what was happening and what was coming. And they apparently kept track of all the predictions. They kept detailed notes of all their sessions, and they happily turned all of that over when they were arrested. Of note, Sapphire told them that, quote, mankind was about to make an evolutionary step, which is why many alien entities were in orbit on or under the Earth. There were two alien groups, the Alliance, who believed in free will, and the others who were abducting people and performing medical experiments on them. Sapphire confirmed to the group that the U.S. government was in cahoots with the aliens, as they had suspected all along. Oh, you know? man, I wish we stormed Area 51 now. I, just, I swore, Tiff, I swore, I swore that we wouldn't get into aliens when we started this podcast, and God damn it, they just won't leave us alone. <laughs> They keep creeping into our stories. All right. But Ouija, how do it work? Well, of course, I know the answer. I mostly know the answer. Strong hypotheses, at least, to the science. In 2012, a study specifically to do with Ouija boards was published by the University of British Columbia. And part of their testing on subjects was this. They first have the subjects answer a series of factual questions of varying difficulty. So... For an American example, they might ask me, what's the capital of a state near me? But then they'd also ask me the capital of some obscure country halfway across the world. Then they'd set the person and a partner up at a Ouija board, blindfold them, and ask the same questions. Only what subject one did not know is that their partner wasn't blindfolded and that the partner took their fingertips off of the planchette. So it was just them answering the questions. And the scientists found out that the participants hit at about 65% correct answers, whereas it was at about 50% when they were asked to respond verbally. So how is it that, first of all, that they seemingly suddenly knew the answers? Well, one researcher pointed out that it's likely that the person had heard that fact at some point before, and they subconsciously knew the answer. Like, it's, you know, that colloquialism of things being on the tip of your tongue, Things mm -hmm. that, you, you know, you can't quite call it up, but it rings vague bells, all those sayings. Okay, so that's that. That answers that. So what's up with the movement of the planchette, assuming that someone in the group isn't moving it intentionally? 
Well, that's chalked up to the ideomotor effect. And this is also something that explains divining rods that lead people to water or whatever, and the whole automatic riding thing and explains pendulums. So that's referring to like, if you've seen people do the thing called scrying over a map or something, you know what I'm talking about? Nope. Picture like a heavy pendant, like on a cord. Okay. And I've got a map in front of me. And typically the pendant that I see is cone shaped or, you know what I mean? Like it's got weight to it. It's not a flat pendant. It's three dimensional. So it's like got a point on it. Okay. So that's why I say cone, you know? I remember this from Charmed is is where my memory is going in case y'all are wondering. But she would like spread a map out on the table in front of her and would hold the pendant, you know, the necklace part over her finger. And she'd hold her hand over the map. And it would start moving and moving and moving. And as she'd lower her hand, it would go boop. And the point would hit on whatever they were looking for. Okay. Got it. Okay. So that's scrying as, as I know it, I, you know, right in, tell me I'm wrong. Okay. But we're not going to go down those roads today because I didn't research any of them. All right. But this isn't a newly known phenomenon associated with Ouija. This goes way, way back. In 1852, a man called William Benjamin Carpenter, who was both a doctor and a physiologist, did the first scientific report that looked at autonomic bodily functions. And just briefly to remind everybody or to tell you if you didn't know, autonomic bodily functions, it just means the things that you don't have to tell yourself to do, like breathing or digesting. The body just does it. And then there's ones that are kind of tied to emotions. Like if you get tearful at a sad movie, You know what I mean? Like it just tears spring to your eyes and you weren't necessarily actively sad, but just it was something was touching. And okay, it's just the body just does it. So then other scientists started looking into it most notably. And you've likely heard of this guy, Michael Faraday. And he conducted experiments in 1853 that were focused on something that interested him, which was table turning. And I had to look that up. Wikipedia tells me, and we hate using Wikipedia, but I have to do it this time because it was easy. It says, quote, table turning, also known as table tapping, table tipping, or table tilting, God, that's a mouthful, is a type of seance in which participants sit around a table, place their hands on it, and wait for rotations. I love that line. (laughs) Wait for rotations. (laughs) Story of my life. Anyway, it proved to Faraday that at least this element that spiritualists were claiming as signs from the great beyond was due to ideomotor reasons. Hey, but did people listen? No. Mm-mm. No. So in short, ideomotor is you or somebody else in the group or more than one moving the planchette without even realizing it. And also, let's not discount, you know, the basic stuff. What if the board is a little warped or if it's not on a completely flat surface? So first off, check that stuff before moving on to eliminating other things. But like one of my sources says, it's not simply a physiological thing. It's a psychological thing because, quote, with Ouija, not only does the individual give up some conscious control to participate, so it can't be me, people think. But also, in a group, no one person can take credit for the planchette's movements, making it seem like the answers must be coming from an otherworldly source. Now, that's a good one. Okay. But I'm going to close out with the words of William Fold, who said, Ouija knows all the answers, weird and mysterious, surpasses in its unique results, mind reading, clairvoyance, and a second sight. It furnishes never-failing amusement and recreation for the entire family. As unexplainable as Hindu magic, more intense and absorbingly interesting than a mystery story, 
Ouija gives you entertainment you never have experienced. It draws the two people using it into a close companionship and weaves about them a feeling of mysterious isolation. Unquestionably, the most fascinating entertainment for modern people and modern life. And he's right, because people still do it today. Yeah. That's your very non-magical story of the Ouija board. Wow. I had no idea. Well, yeah, I didn't realize how far back it went. And that it was just like fun family times. I guess that's because I was raised Catholic. So it was just always kind of pushed into me that that's that's for the devil. <laughs> Wowza. There were some really cool ones on my adventure that I went on. There were a lot of people selling them. I kind of wanted to get one. I'm going to, because I'll put some pictures of what they've looked like throughout the years. Not all of them, because my God, but I'll put a handful of them in show notes. But yeah, they were, they are beautiful. The old, like hand carved wood ones. They're gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. There were the, what, there were some that I was looking at that they're actually like circle shaped, like instead of just being the rectangular board and they were, I don't know, they were prettier. And smarter. Because if you have a group of people around it, you know, yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Then you don't have to sit so close. <laughs> Oh, well, mm. (laughs) no more flirting via Ouija boards. Okay, people. No more knee bumping. (laughs) Damn it. I love a good knee bump. I ain't been knee bumped in years. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, I was when I was researching my topic, I was surprised. But now looking at what I researched and after hearing your story, it's interesting the overlap between history and folklore, modern stories and science. And of course, you don't think about all of that when you're a preteen and you're being an asshole and playing these games and thinking it's hilarious to mess around with demons and spirits and whatever else. So I looked into the whole story and history of Bloody Mary. Yes, yes. Which I think just about everybody had to have played this at some point. Oh, yeah. Male, female, doesn't. I don't think it matters. This one, and we did light as a feather, stiff as a board. Yep, that was another one. It did never work as well as it did in the craft movie, though. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but yeah, we, we played the hell out of this game. It didn't really help for me personally that I was scared of the dark until I was like 13. <laughs> so, of course, it was always a thrill and super exciting to be forced to go into a small room and try and say Bloody Mary three times. At least that's what we knew to play Bloody Mary was you had to go and say it three times into the mirror. But of course, all the history behind it, there's so much more to it. And it is a lot more fun than just that game. All in all, really, the Bloody Mary stories weren't around until around the 1970s. When Oh, yeah. And this is when stories of Mary Worth were published in some folklore books. And from there, it really got spread around. And that's where it became this kind of challenge kind of game. And there are so many different versions. And it's really in every region, there's a different incantation. There's a different appearance for Mary. And one that's not actually Mary, but I really liked this one was that in Spain, you can see the devil's face. So you need to stare at your own face in the mirror at the stroke of midnight, call the devil's name, and the Prince of Darkness will look back at you. So that's a fun one. Now, this actually goes back even further. So I know that Bloody Mary didn't really show up until around the 1970s. 
But there was a kind of game about invoking spirits through a mirror. And this was supposed to actually reveal the face of your future husband. Or if you were going to die before you were able to get married, you would see a skull or the Grim Reaper. So, you know, you had, you had a good shot there. So a young woman was supposed to walk backward up a staircase while holding a candle and a hand mirror, which is just really dangerous, especially when you consider the long flowy nightgowns that women used to wear. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. If it were me, I probably would have been like, yep, totally saw somebody just try and keep myself from getting set on fire, tripping up the stairs. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't even care what, it, what I would have said. Like, yeah, this guy's totally ugly, but whatever. At least it wasn't the Green Reaper. From there, there are lots of different interpretations of the game, like I said. In one interpretation, you have to say Bloody Mary as many as 17 times. Jesus! Right? That is Nobody's a lot. Nobody's got time for that. <laughs> Another one you have to say, I believe in Mary Worth, or some other kind of specific taunt calling a very particular version of Mary. Sometimes you need to spin five times, or you need red candles, or you have to be in the dark. In some versions, Mary is a woman that's covered in blood. In another, she attacks the person who summons her. In another, she's headless. In another, she doesn't actually appear, but she makes the mirror and the toilet fill with blood. Sometimes she makes you see visions of blood, or she'll leave you with slashes in your skin because you've sinned. You guys understand where I'm going, just that there's no real consistent story of the Bloody Mary game slash legend or summoning spell, whatever you want to call it. As I mentioned, one of them is Mary Worth, and she was a witch. She lived in Chicago, and it was in the Civil War era. She lived slightly outside the main part of town, and people had already regarded her as a witch, and it was mostly because, you know, she would give them herbs and healing things. But they noticed that children and young women started to disappear, and apparently they eventually raided her house and they found out that she had been kidnapping children, runaways, escaped slaves. She had performed all sorts of rituals and harvested their bodies for spells. They believed that she was doing this to try and keep herself young. She was discovered at some point during the war. She was taken out to a field, tied to a stake, and burned, as you do when you come across a witch. But apparently since she was burned on her own land, it became cursed and somehow her spirit got moved into a mirror. That part's not really ever explained, but boom, there she is. There's another specific version that was discovered that was Mary Worthing. She was a beautiful woman, but she became disfigured in an accident, couldn't deal with it, and killed herself. So, you know, the whole vanity thing, getting trapped in a mirror. Again, we know what's going on there. There's the historical Mary, Queen Mary I, daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. She is not Mary, Queen of Scots. Just a quick historical thing to make sure everybody knows the difference there. You can find, of course, lots of information on Mary and on Henry and all his wives. There's lots of dramatic shows. You had the whole history lesson. There's that song, right? Isn't there a song? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, isn't there? What's that one? Like, I'm Henry the Eighth. I am. No? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> Okay, we're going we're gonna to let that slide. I have no idea. <laughs> Whatever. I know that there's like, there's lots of ways you could learn about Henry and all of his wives and what an asshat he was. All right. Um, here's a... I don't think that's about... <laughs> that song's not about King Henry. What now? I don't... It's I'm Henry, Henry the Eighth I am. 
Henry VIII I am. I got married to the widow next door. She's been married seven times before. And everyone was a Henry. So he's Henry the eighth Henry that she married, not Henry the Eighth, the <laughs> King of England. All right. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm glad you knew the song. That's only the only part I knew was I'm Henry the Eighth I am. <laughs> I'm gonna trust that you're gonna edit that for me. <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh, bitch. So, anyways, I'm gonna move on from that stupidity of mine. All right, very brief history of Mary, because a lot of people do attribute Bloody Mary to her because that was her nickname given to her by the Protestants. But I kind of found that she's not really the Mary that coincides with all of these stories that we know. She was his first surviving child. She was born in 1516. The first part of her life, she actually had a good relationship with him. She was known to be pretty good looking. She had a fair complexion. She was educated. She actually was promised to like several various suitors. This started at the age of two. She started to be promised off to different countries and kings. And then, of course, he moved on when he wasn't getting any sons. New wives, new children, their relationship became strained. She fell out of favor. Then 1531 was when she started to get sick and she started to have like irregular menstruation. She started to suffer from depression. It's not really clear what caused all of this, if it was stress, if it was puberty or some other kind of deep-seated disease. Her half-brother died when he was 15. She ended up taking the throne in 1553 and attempted to return England to Catholicism. During that time, she ended up burning about 280 Protestants at the stake. And even though some recanted the Protestant faith, she refused to offer them any reprieve and let them be burned anyway. So she was really not forgiving. One quote that I found said, most were popular preachers, artisans, farm laborers, or poor ignorant folk who could not recite the Lord's Prayer or did not know what the sacraments were. And this comes from Alison Weir. She wrote a book called Children of Henry VIII. The wealthy Protestants had long since fled. Some were blind or disabled. One woman named Paratine Massey of Guernsey was pregnant. Her baby was born as she was burning and then cast back into the flames by the executioner. Oh my. Oh. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. She eventually did marry a cousin, Prince Philip of Spain. It was a 100% political marriage, although it's said that she did love him, but he didn't love her. She then experienced a false pregnancy. When she was found out not to be pregnant, her husband ended up basically ditching her and taking off to Spain. He's like, I didn't really want this anyways. He did return in 1557. And to add to her super depressing five-year reign, there happened to be a long bout of bad weather, which damaged farmlands and caused famine. So her nickname was given to her by, like I said, the Protestant writers and critics, people who had suffered from persecution. To add to that, you know, people were starving because of the famine. She wasn't producing any heirs and she was in an unhappy marriage. People, you know, went on about that quite a bit. And she was also pretty anxious to declare war. She also had another false pregnancy in 1557. And not long after, she ended up falling very ill from what may have been cysts or uterine cancer. And she passed away in 1558. Now, in one of the versions of Bloody Mary that I came across, you have to summon her by actually taunting her by saying something like, I stole your baby or I killed your baby. So that just, that doesn't seem like a good idea, personally, to be taunting a spirit and saying something like that. No. Mm -mm. 
And this kind of goes nicely into my next Bloody Mary source, menstruation folklore, which is totally oh my God. a thing. <laughs> today I learned. I was today years old <laughs> when I learned about menstruation folklore. Yep. And this was, I, I get it. I hate it, but I get it. Psychoanalysts have proposed that the game has to do with young girls and the onset of menstruation. In the book, Bloody Mary in the Mirror, Essays in Psychoanalytic Folkloristics. I'm pretty sure that's a made up word. It says, it should be abundantly clear that the girls ritual has something to do with the onset of the first menses. How is that abundantly clear? It's just playing a stupid game in the mirror to see if a ghost pops up. What does that have to do with your period? Well, let me tell you. Oh, God. There are a number of reasons why a menstrual interpretation of the Bloody Mary ritual makes sense. These reasons include the age of the players and how it coordinates with the average age a girl gets her first period. Which, okay, I just need to pop in here really quick because in looking all this up, have you ever heard of moon parties? It's a, is it like a quinceanera for when you get your period? It is. Okay. <laughs> I did not know that was a thing until like... I don't know. I was older. I was an adult and I was working with another woman and she's like, my daughter got her period. We're having a, her moon party. And I'm like, what the, f what the, f no, don't do that. Do you, do you get like bouquets of tampons? And <laughs> I don't know. That should be like, yeah, like a baby shower. You know, people supply you with diapers and all that shit. Like have a moon party and let people just stock you up with supplies. That should be how it goes. That's probably not. It's probably people being like, oh, you're a woman now. That's so wonderful. No, I want I want a bunch of crappy cheap underwear because you don't want to wear your good stuff at that time of the month. I want like a crate of tampons and pads and chocolate. <laughs> I want chocolate. I want like a heating pad. I want ibuprofen or whatever is your drug of choice. I just all right. I I just needed to know. I just needed to ask if like that was something. I don't want a goddamn cake in the shape of a moon. <laughs> Well, they're all shaped like moons, technically, I guess. Mm -hmm. But no, there was that's a whole nother thing that I don't want to go off on that tangent. But that's a thing. There are some people and I get it. You know, culturally, there might be ways that you kind of acknowledge a girl that's going through that. I know for myself and all of my friends, it was traumatic. And we were like, oh, God, the world is ending. Don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I just it happens. And there mm -hmm. you go. Anyways, going back. Other reasons are that it takes place in a bathroom and the sudden appearance of blood. So this is dumb. <clears throat> I'm sorry. That's dumb. <laughs> That's just stupid. That's a stretch. Mm -hmm. I also shit in the bathroom. Maybe I need a treatise on shit. Deem I don't know. Oh, you're Belphegor. See, the bathroom is a magical spot. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's see. What else did it say? Oh. There is a version of the Bloody Mary ritual where, like I said, you know, she'll make blood appear on the mirror or in the toilet. And in order to end the ritual or whatever it is, you have to flush, <laughs> which I guess, yeah, you don't you don't want to just leave a toilet full of blood. But of course, that goes back to this, to the menstruation folklore that, you know, flushing the toilet is part of cleaning up the blood from menstruation. Then the author went on this whole long thing about virginity and womanhood and Mary as a name and Mary as in get married, which no, no. As like as a young girl. People have paid her for this. 
yeah, you get you guys. It'll of course be in the show notes, so you can read even more. I mean, it goes it goes on for pages about all of these things that coordinate between. Oh my gosh, it's this beautiful step to womanhood. No, as a young girl, I just wanted to be scared out of my mind in a bathroom with my friends outside giggling and imagine that I saw some demon. That's all. That's all I yeah. wanted. Yeah, nope. had nothing to do with my period. The source goes on to kind of tie in with the Mary Worth story, but she takes away the cool witchy part and she ends up taking her name quite literally and, quote, a girl is socialized into believing that her worth as a female will be realized through achieving womanhood, marriage, bearing children, etc. To be then a worth Mary, one must first become a woman. Bitch. I, I, it's just all such a stretch. Yeah. She's not wrong, you know, in the sense right. of what many people value women for and, you know, as breeders and that's pretty much it. But yeah. Yeah. That's why I said I get it, but I hate it. I mean, she's got a lot of time on her hands is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> not everything is connected, y'all. Just to our young listeners, just be aware. Not everything is connected to everything. Like <laughs> some things are just exactly what they are, which are slumber party games you know trying to freak yourself out and that's all there is to it that's yeah. it yep yeah i just need to continue with the, with this a little bit because in searching through this even further i found that there are even like quotes and warnings that span from aristotle to mojave beliefs about women not being able to look into mirrors while menstruating because it could cause that harm to them or to others and there's a funny source that it's non-scientific non you know necessarily quotable for for this but just for funsies go check it out in show notes because it's got a good laugh in there for superstitions about menstruation enough about womanhood let's talk about corpses again yes <laughs> now i'm throwing this one back a little bit to the second part of our corpse episodes and in that one i actually ended up going off on a little thing about funeral traditions and this now connects with some of our suspicions and traditions regarding Bloody Mary. As a kind of a quick refresher, during the time of the wake, mirrors and paintings were covered or they were turned around. Windows were shuttered. People didn't wear silk or jewelry because they believed that shiny and reflective surfaces actually attracted the disembodied spirit. So there's a connection to the idea of a spirit lingering in a mirror or a reflective object. But we're going to dive into some science now. Sorry, guys. It turns out there's a totally logical explanation for all of this. The longer you stare in a mirror, the more likely you are to start seeing things that aren't there. And this is without even the influence of ghost stories or Ouija boards or anything like that that's going to make you start thinking that there's something else around. This is partly due to a phenomenon called the Troxler effect, which was discovered in 1804. And it explains how our brains process a lot of optical illusions. So after prolonged fixation, unchanging stimuli will actually fade away from your awareness. As a result, your neurons cancel the information out. And so then the image that you're looking at appears blurry or faded or distorted until you blink or look around. So it's like, you know, when you're staring at one of those 3D pictures and you kind of have to zone out a little bit to see what's in there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. yep. So you got to you got to zone out a little bit, kind of let everything fade away until you can see the picture. But then of course, when you start looking around again and actually trying to physically focus, you can't necessarily see it. So it's that whole distortion and how our brains perceive it all. 
There's another part of this phenomenon that is a little bit more recently discovered and described, and it's called the strange face in the mirror illusion. This was discovered by an Italian psychologist called Giovanni Caputo, and this was actually an experiment that was conducted in 2010. People were asked to enter a dimly lit room and stare at their own reflection for 10 minutes. These people reported that they saw huge deformations on their face. About 48% of these people saw fantastical or monstrous beings. Others described seeing the face of like a parent or another family member. A lot of times these people were deceased. They would see an animal's face, face of an old woman, a child. Just basically, you know, they're seeing stuff that's really not there. And so to achieve this experiment, he recommends dim lighting. And this is because you need to be able to see your face in detail, but there's also color perception that needs to be warped. So an article in Scientific American actually describes this whole process really well. It's very similar to the whole Troxler effect. As we gaze long and steady into our reflected face, the unchanging nature of the visual stimulus causes facial features to disappear and then reappear. And as we blink or make involuntary eye movements, thereby refreshing our neuronal responses, in the absence of visual information, our brain will fill in the gaps according to our experiences, expectations, best guesses, and even hardwired neural mechanisms involved in shape and face perception. And the result can be amusing or disquieting. So that's why you go in there with your candle and you say Bloody Mary or you spin around five times and then you say it 20 times, whatever it is. You're standing in a dimly lit room, you're staring at this mirror and your brain basically shorts out for a little bit because it's bored. And then when you try to focus again, it's like, hey, let's have all these images kind of come together as you're focusing. And that's why you see a demon or an old woman, or some headless bitch, or you get your period, whatever it is. Or you get your period. Yep. (laughs) Quit spinning so fast. Jesus, you're shaking it all out. So there you go. And, you know, I mean, you guys can, you can test this for yourself. Cause like I said, all you need is a dim light. One of the authors for this article actually did this. He ended up just using like his cell phone flashlight, put it behind him. So it wasn't directly in the mirror, but just enough so that he could see the mirror and focus put it behind him, stared for, you know, whatever it was, 10 minutes. And even he was like, wow, yeah, I saw like my grandfather's face and all this stuff happened. You can see it in optical illusions where you've got like the four dots and all of a sudden you start seeing that other dot in the middle or it's a blurry picture and you stare at it and all of a sudden just kind of fades to gray. And it's because your brain is just like, la 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 la, nothing's happening. Okay, this is, we're just clearing that out. (laughs) That's not important. Just clear it out. And it's like that thing. It's not anthropomorphizing. Well, I I guess it is to a degree, but there's a specific term when we see things like when you see a bunny rabbit in the clouds or you see a face in a rock formation, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like we, our brains look for things, look for familiarity and look for, to try to make sense of stuff. Hello, it's me, the text to speech guy. The word Nash was thinking of was pareidolia. It is defined as, quote, the psychological phenomenon that causes some people to see or hear a vague or random image or sound as something significant. And then, of course, once this sight or sound is told to others, those who are susceptible will often see or hear it as well. Carry on. Yeah, that was brought up in some of what I read, too, is that, you know, we're always kind of looking, like you said, for familiarity, for faces. 
we can stare at anything and basically find something that we want to see. It's, you know, why we see Jesus and toast. Jesus and toast. <laughs> Jesus and toast is now <laughs> on the list for uh for episode titles. So it's we not all... gonna be menstruation folklore, I'll sure as fuck tell you that. That's not on the list. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, you can take from that what you will. Maybe you want to believe that Bloody Mary is, I don't know, I would consider it maybe a warning story about becoming a woman. That sounds horrible. Or you can believe that there is a witch in your mirror. But I think optical illusions is actually the coolest one. That's a cool trick. Yeah. And it's one that you can replicate at home. If you do, write us and tell us about it. I want to know what you see. Do you see a headless woman? Do you see your eyes bleeding? Do you see your grandmother? Yeah. <laughs> Is it Belfagor? <laughs> yeah, let us know. But that's it. That's what I got. So go play your spooky games. Go summon your spirits. Don't do it alone or in your house. Oh, you know what's a good spot probably then? Huh? You should go to a porta potty. That way you're not summoning it in your house. There's a good chance Belfagor could show up. True. And there's always that crappy mirror in there. So you can leave Bloody Mary in the See, I found the perfect spot. There, there you, you go. go. Problem solved. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was fun. That was a very educational episode, I feel like. I feel like, too. I really do. And the fun keeps going because Halloween month is not over yet. You still got, we've got a spooky snack next week, Tiff's Adventure, which mm -hmm. we're not telling you about, but that's next week. And then the week after that's Halloween. Like actual Halloween. Actual Halloween. And you get your Halloween episode, which is about, I'll go ahead and tell you things that have happened on Halloween. <laughs> well, how about that? That's not a spoiler. I mean, you had to have guessed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, it's broad enough. There's lots of stuff that's happened on Halloween. Oh, yeah. Shit goes down, including perhaps Ouija board play and getting your period. There you go. So much to look forward to. There's plenty of chocolate. See, it's win-win. If you do get your period on Halloween, it's win-win. <laughs> I hope we haven't alienated any men. We apologize, men. We just, it's, it. Ha look, it happens. It's a bodily function. I just, if girls get moon parties, like, what do boys, do boys get for, like, getting their first boner? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some cultural tradition of which we're unaware, where you get some special quinceanera for your first boner. <laughs> if you know about that, make sure to tell us. <laughs> make sure to write in and tell us. Do not Ouija it to us. <laughs> mm -mm. Nope, that's not going to work. That won't go through. No. Don't send it in blood. Don't send a blood message or anything. We're on lots of social media platforms. Again, make sure you listen afterwards and you'll hear about all of it. I tell you what, though, if we had a P.O. box, I would I would try to solicit a Ouija board from one of the listeners. And I would absolutely I wouldn't show my face because I don't plan on doing that. I mean, I'm a dish, but I'm still I'm not going to reveal my secret identity. But I would absolutely set up my phone to where it could record my hands. And I would ask that Ouija board the most <laughs> inappropriate. Y'all know how I am. <laughs> I you I want the cartoon Ouija board. I want the little kid, like, I want the little girl Ouija, Ouija board. board. <laughs> yeah. But I would ask it the absolute dumbest questions. And I legit, I swear to y'all, I would not intentionally move it. I would let the idiomotor thing take over and I would just shut my eyes and kind of <laughs> let it drift. Zozo, what you got to say? Yeah. That would be good. If I, if I blindfolded myself and I let it drift and then I would have to watch back the video 
to see what the answers were. So we'd all kind of learn at the same time. <laughs> right. Oh, that would be fun. But we don't have a PO box, so I'm not going to do that. No. Oh. Maybe some other time. Maybe One when day. we've made it big. Maybe 5,000 listens. Maybe at 5,000. Yes, right. <laughs> so that's it, folks. There you go. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure to listen again for where to find us and make sure you stay spooky. Definitely stay spooky. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.